Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey, listeners. Welcome to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Aaron, and with me for this August Donor Pick episode is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hello, everyone. This Hitchcock classic was the runaway winner in our patron vote and has a story that is sure to make for great conversation. We're also very sorry that this is coming to you a full week into September, but a holiday and some schedule conflicts got in the way of our earlier release. Before we get started, we also want to let you know that now in our Patreon, 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 I hate that those two words are so close together. One patron. sounds like a cyberpunk patron. The patron. The patron. He, yeah, but out now in our Patreon feed is a bonus content conversation about the Japanese horror comedy One Cut of the Dead. That was a lot of fun. We've recently made a change, and our Patreon bonus content, which happens every month, will be available to all listeners two weeks after release. That gives our amazing patrons exclusive access for a while as a huge thank you for their incredible support. But listeners who can't afford us to throw us any dollars, you aren't going to miss out. What that also means is that as of now, our entire library of bonus content, so several years worth, is now right there ready for you to listen to. So just visit patreon.com slash feelinfilm and you can check all of that out. And with that out of the way, Patrick, now let's go ahead and get into some Hitchcock with our one word takeaways. What is yours? Well... As spoiler-free as I can be with this, my one word takeaway was perspective. And as I like to do, I think as you like to do, we like to kind of tie in, maybe using a clever pun of some kind to tie into our really gut reaction to the movie. And perspective really seemed to be the thing that summed up how I felt. Obviously, we're looking at the perspective of the main character. We are seeing Jeffrey looking at the world around him from his window and at the same time, Hitchcock is giving us something of a social commentary that as far back as this movie was, it is incredibly relevant today. And I think that's why it's stayed so popular and why it was the runaway winner for the August donor pick. Because despite the fact if you love or hate Hitchcock, I'm not traditionally a fan of his work. I appreciate it. And there are certain movies that stand out to me, Psycho being one of them. I'm going to be more inclined to say, if you're going to give me a Hitchcock or give me a Rod Serling, I'm going to go with Rod Serling or something of that matter. But when you look at this movie and you see it against the landscape of what we are living in as a culture, not just 2020 and all of its craziness, but in general, the world of looking at the world, <laughs> the world of seeing people through a digital lens of sorts, some of the outcomes, some of the consequences, and some of the perspectives really are the same. So it doesn't really matter if you're looking through a window, through a camera lens, or through a cell phone. We are getting to a place, or we are at a place where judgments are made, things are simplified, sometimes overly simplified, and sometimes things are not what they seem. And so watching Rear Window with that perspective personally helped elevate it 
to a place beyond just a simple story about a guy who is looking out through his window and seeing the world that he lives in from a wheelchair. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think mine's pretty close to that as I'm not shocked to to find out. Mine is curiosity. You know, who among us has not peered out our windows to see a neighbor and paused to wonder what they might be up to? I was getting myself a drink in the kitchen literally 10 minutes before walking into my bedroom to get on the mic for this podcast, Patrick, and I caught myself gazing out my kitchen window and I could see my neighbor's windows and I was like, hmm, here I am in this situation. What am I going to do? Well, I'm going to just slide over here to the left a little bit so I can see around these dangling branches and see what I can see. And I think that that is a very natural reaction for most people. And it generally is one of out of curiosity. I find myself doing it all the time when I'm driving. I will come up to a stoplight and I'll kind of peek into another car while sitting there just wondering what the driver might be doing. What what kind of conversation are they having? What kind of music are they bobbing their head to? And of course, all of this until someone catches your eye, in which case the immediate reaction is to turn and hide and pretend that you were not looking at someone. But we are always curious about others. And I think what this movie shows us is how quickly that can become an obsessive nosiness uh, to some extent. There's a great moment in the movie where Jeff is using his binoculars to spy on one of the guests that he has some suspicions about uh, across the way. And he then goes to get out his actual camera because he's a photographer. And he puts on this longer lens and he ends up changing it out multiple times because he's wanting to get a closer and closer shot. And all I could think about was how I've literally done this too, only with my cell phone. I'll zoom in with my cell phone to see like, hey, I'm taking a snapshot right here. But what can I see if I zoom in with that lens and and catch something from a little further away? What can I see where people don't necessarily think that I'm looking at them? I'm looking through this lens and this movie like brought up all of those feelings for me. It made me kind of question my own ethical semi spying, I guess, in a lot of ways, even though I always immediately you know, would say it's from curiosity. And I think the film takes that idea and it kind of turns it into one of these Hitchcockian, you know, expert pictures where it's one of the most suspenseful and brilliantly crafted crime thriller thrillers that I've seen. It's got this claustrophobic nature to it where you know jeff is stuck in this confined space and he's stationary so he you really can't go anywhere you're stuck with him in this room for the entirety of this movie hitchcock's so good at doing this he does something like this with rope and some of his other films are always just like these incredible like single location pictures Um, And I also thought it was kind of fun, Patrick, that there's an old saying that curiosity killed the cat. And well, you know what? Maybe it killed the dog, too. (laughs) Spoiler a little bit there, but (laughs) not a big one. (laughs) Speaking of spoilers, we are now going to go ahead and dive into the depths of this film and talk about it in all of its wonder. So if you haven't seen it, turn away, go check out Rear Window and then come back and listen to this episode and you can enjoy whatever we are able to pull out of it. 
Well, the film focuses on Jeffries, and that's we're going to call him Jeff or Jeffries probably for the duration of the podcast. I believe his name is actually like LB Jeffries, or I don't remember his initials, but it's he's got some initials <laughs> and then it's Jeffries. So it's like his last name, but he goes by Jeff, which I always found interesting. And I don't know a lot of people that do that other than my good friend Jeff Teeples, who goes by Teeps, which is based on his last name. Usually people get a nickname based on their first name, but anywho. Totally sidebar there, but Jeff's this voyeur and he's got this eventual belief and ultimately obsession that his neighbor Thornwald has murdered his wife. And the whole movie is about him looking into the windows of his neighbors and presuming what is happening across the way and these little nuggets of information that he has turning into him creating these elaborate stories about what he sees filling in the gaps to the point where he starts to believe that a crime has been committed or in some cases that someone is, you know, being unfaithful to their spouse or their loved ones and, and all kinds of different, you know, things that he starts to think. So, I wanted to start at the beginning and ask you, what do you see from Jeff as a character early on that gets him so interested in watching his neighbors? Like, why is he finding himself in the position to where it's more than just like the curiosity we talked about in our one more takeaways? When you talk about someone who's a photojournalist, he's really out to get a story from a visual perspective. And watching him struggle with the fact that he can't move, the things that really give him his job, his legs, allow him to be mobile along with his camera, are limited. He can move back and forth. He's also in a position where he is bored. And the natural tendency to be curious is amplified by his job. As a photojournalist, you're trying to capture a story on film. You're trying to capture a moment. You're trying to capture a series of moments. And so to me, that perspective, that attitude, and that way of looking at the world in general, I think is something that is ingrained in him. Maybe not habitually from you know heredity, but from experience of just traveling around the world. And I think a combination of him feeling trapped, feeling like he can't accomplish anything of value, sometimes that boredom leads to exploration. And Photojournalism in and of itself is kind of a journey. It's kind of a mystery to be solved because you are capturing these photos and you're putting them together to tell a story. Well, I think in the same way, he's got his own narrative going on because of the world that he lives in right now, that world of a wheelchair and massage table. And that's about the only two places that he lives literally within his department. In fact, I think it's his therapist that says at some point, will you sleep in your bed because he's having back problems and it's of course causing havoc on his therapy. But when you watch him look and see all these things happening, I think personally it's him trying to get a story just like as a photojournalist, you're trying to capture a story. You might not be writing it, but you're capturing it on film. I think he's trying to create a new story and something to really kind of give him 
personal significance, not necessarily a Pulitzer kind of fame, but as someone who feels trapped, I think he's trying to find a way to give his life meaning, if only for a few moments a day. I like that reading, and I think it probably is true. I mean, I would agree. I guess I would say I would agree with you. <laughs> no, it sounded terrible. It sounded like I was like going to be like, no, you're wrong. No, I, I agree. I think it kind of goes sort of in hand with what I was going to talk about here. And you're right, though, with him being a photojournalist. Like, this is his livelihood. This is what he knows. So, of course, he's going to kind of revert to what he knows because that's all he can do. And so he's going to try to do that thing in whatever context he can while he's stuck laid up with this leg injury, unable to go anywhere and do anything. It reminded me personally of certain periods of my life where I have experienced the unfortunate, <laughs> I've, I've, I've tried to jump to conclusions too quick. Okay. So I will would take pieces of a, something that was happening in my life and I would try to put them together to solve a mystery that may or may not exist. But I needed it in some ways to exist because it explained things in a way that kept my attention and kept me interested. And so I see Jeff as being, this is the dog days of summer. He's hot. He is completely bored with the exception of, you know, visits occasionally from Stella, his caretaker, I guess. And then his girlfriend, Lisa, he's by himself and there's no TV, Patrick. It's not like he's got all of these ways to distract himself. This is his distraction. And I've been in these situations where just the smallest idea it makes me think of inception the smallest doubt crept into my head and i began playing private investigator much like jeff has done where instead of trying to solve something in a way that i thought would prove innocence or prove the world around me to be good i immediately found myself looking for the worst case scenario and gravitating towards that, which is what Jeff does here. And so I think that it's a natural thing sometimes that we just tend to do out of fear and out of worry. Uh, and, and so especially if we're in a position maybe in our lives for those that are not thoroughly happy or not comfortable with where they're at. And so I feel like that's Jeff. Jeff is not necessarily he's not like in a great place. You know what I mean? He's not he's not breaking down necessarily, but he is easily entertained to the point where he's looking for, like you said, he's looking for that big event, that photojournalist event. And, it, it, you know, he got in this accident from a car crash at a racetrack like he's been in a war shooting pictures before. He's, I think, looking for the flashy sort of negative connotation to the event. And so it's easy to find that little nugget and be like, Ooh, what if this, and then try to start solving the mystery to prove the thing you think would be most exciting. Right. And I think it's about excitement, but I think it's also about validation. And recently I've been going through the newsroom 
on HBO Max, which I love the series. And like most Sorkin-led TV series, I can watch them multiple times. And he reminds me a lot of the character Mackenzie McHale, who has been in the field doing amazing journalistic work. And the difference between him and her is that she wants to come back home. He's forced to essentially come back home because he's been injured. He's sidelined and he can't go anywhere. Both of them, though, I think are excited by the news of the world. And when you are limited to being in one place, having to see the world outside of a window, for him, he creates his own news network in a sense where he's like, all right, here in this room, here's what's happening here. And here's what's happening there. And what happens, Aaron, is that now you start getting into potentially fake news or that misinformation. Even if he's not reporting it to anybody, it still becomes that kind of pseudo news that is more interesting than accurate. And I think that's what Hitchcock does well here is he draws us in as an audience because we're essentially sitting there next to Jeff watching these people as well. And we're we're really casting our own judgments too from a 2020 perspective, from a, a a male perspective. And I think that's what makes it interesting is you can watch it and see it through those different lenses, pun intended, and be able to draw your own conclusions, right or wrong. The conclusions that you draw, if they're interesting to you, that's all that matters. And I think that's what we get from Jeff is, as long as they matter to him, they should matter to everyone else. And I think that's where he gets into a danger area is he's trying to project that onto other people who it may not be their business. It may not apply to them at all. And it may cause more harm than good. Yeah. And I think, you know, you mentioned us as the audience and this is a big deal. I mean, Hitchcock prides himself on audience being a, an active participant in his films. Like that's the kind of movies he makes. He famously said, and I paraphrase this quote, but he wants to play his audience like a piano, which I find fascinating because his cameo, he is always in his films. Did you see his cameo in this film? I told you to look out for it. I did. I saw it. I know it's been a couple of weeks, but I know it's been a couple of weeks for being honest. Um, I, I did see it, but I can't, I think he was, was he talking to, who was he talking? He was talking to somebody. I don't. So remember. the guy in the apartment across the way that is playing his piano. Yes. In okay. one scene, when we pan, pan to his window, we see Hitchcock at the kitchen sink, with his back to the piano player, talking to the piano player, and he turns his head as if to talk to the piano player, and it's almost for a moment like he's peering directly into the audience at the camera, and I just, I thought that was awesome. Um, I, I just I love the Hitchcock cameos. They're so good. I always look for them. I, I started watching Dial M for Murder, Patrick, tonight. I'm going to finish it after the podcast. I hadn't seen it ever before, but I had been watching some reviews of Rear Window recently just to reacclimate myself with the plot because it's been a few weeks and reminded how much I am absolutely smitten with Grace Kelly. And haven't seen much that she's in. And so I saw, oh, yeah, Dial in for Murder. And I haven't seen that. And she's in that. His cameo in that one is really cool, too. He's in a picture very much like The Shining, where he's just a photo that he is showing someone in that movie in the context of the movie. And one of the people sitting at the table in that picture, not the person that he's pointing out, of course, 
in the movie, but it, there's Hitchcock looking at the audience through the picture turned on his seat to be looking out. And I just, I love how he does that. But this one specifically, he's like talking to a piano player. So for him to be playing the audience, I don't even remember how we got here, but my point being is that the odd, Oh, the audience is an active participant. That's what I was saying. And I wondered, you know, Jeff's opinion, Jeff's viewing of his neighbors changes over the course of the movie. And I wondered how you reacted. Did you like, where did you start? And then where did you end with your personal voyeurism or personal acceptance of his voyeurism? Like, was there a point where you felt this was totally okay and natural and something you would be doing? And then was there a moment where you maybe decided this is not okay and then had to come to grips with that? The moment that you have to actually back up physically and get out of your own light because you've been almost caught, I think is the, is the line. Because at that point, you're conscious of the fact that you're doing something wrong. And I'm not necessarily a proponent of the be sorry when you get caught as opposed to being sorry just because you did something wrong. At the same time, I know that as human beings, that's what happens. We go to that line. And we get as close as we can, even crossing it. But if we get burned, we back up. And at that point, we know that we've done something wrong. And for me, I think when he started to put pieces together, especially when they were put together in between times when he was sleeping, when he nodded off, when we get that unreliable narrator sort of hinted at, that's when I started feeling a little uneasy because not only is he starting to kind of craft his own narrative, but now he's starting to involve other people. And to an extent, that's not his job. His job is to be a photographer. His job is to get better and Frankly, I think his job is to close the window because now he's involving himself in things that maybe he is doing something from justice, a justice paced, a justice standpoint, but he's doing it from a place of incomplete information. And I started feeling the danger of that, of saying, Jeff, I think you're starting to kind of go around the bend with this and even finding out that he was right in some regard to me it still didn't override the feeling that i felt of saying look that's not our business we don't know the situation justified or not based on the actions it's our job to be curious and that's about it when you start involving other people that's when i started getting uncomfortable with what he was doing yeah i would agree that for me it's very much when he starts involving other people less so when he almost gets caught. I'll admit uh, I felt a little nervousness and fear for him, but I didn't immediately feel those, you know, same things in myself. I was still fully on board. I was more in the camp of, okay, well let's be more careful when we're looking out the window next time, uh, which is, I, I guess I'm just saying what I'm saying about myself, but you know, I didn't until he started trying to enlist the other's help. And really taking it to the point of 
not listening to a detective and things of that nature, I was like, okay, now we're, we're starting to really get to the point where I have to question what you're doing and what your, the story that you're crafting. It also becomes interestingly, and I think intentionally by Hitchcock, increasingly more complex to the point where you think it's less and less likely that this could be true. It's at least for me, the more things that Jeff supposedly finds that he tries to consider as clues, I find it to be him stretching to put these pieces together, which is fascinating, of course, because in the end he's right. And so it, I think it's made to play like that because to me, it's like, okay, stop being ridiculous. The dog isn't digging up the flower bed because there's a body there. You know what I mean? Like there's not body parts in a suitcase a la Dexter here. You know, like this is not what's happening. You're really kind of pushing the limits here of believability. And yet he's right. Um, and so it's fascinating to like consider, like, like you said, what that line is for you in your own understanding of the pursuit of his pursuit of justice. The detective at one point actually calls out his hypocrisy in a great scene where he is talking about how, what was he saying? He's telling the detective that he doesn't know what's the character. I had it written down. Um, Basically, the gist of it is that Jeff has been having Lisa stay over overnight, and that's the hypocrisy that the detective is calling out. He's like, well, you don't tell your landlord everything, right? He's like, so you're accusing this person across the way of not being honest and fully truthful, but yet you yourself are doing the same thing because he's not supposed to have someone in his room. And... I found that really interesting from like an ethical perspective. So just in general, ethically speaking, the fact that Jeff is trying to solve a murder, does that play into this for you? And does that change where that line is for you of how much is it okay to be doing what he's doing in the pursuit of justice and truth? Well, you, you you had me until you said truth. And I think that Jeff's personal justice meter is equally as varied as any one of our justice meters. Like, taking my perspective, I'm the guy that's like, I don't want to see that. Does that make me culpable? Because the murder happened, and I chose not to watch it. I chose not to report what I didn't see, that kind of thing. I think that's where Hitchcock plays really well with our, not only our emotions, but our moral compasses, because we are trying to, as people in this story, figure out a case. We're trying to solve a case with him, but it's different than if we're watching a procedural drama on television, in which case we're watching other people solve that case. The difference here, Aaron, is that the people we're watching in those procedurals are actually qualified. 
they have been called to investigate. Or if you're a suspect or a witness, you report what you see. What Jeff does is go beyond reporting what he sees. He starts piecing things together based on what he sees as clues, as you mentioned before, but not everything. He thinks he sees someone leave. In fact, there's this great sequence um, with the night that it rains and he's kind of dozing back and forth between like the hours of one and five. And I don't know if this is intentional, but Hitchcock tends to have him go to sleep and then shows us as an audience, the guy leaving and coming back. And we're getting what we know or what we think we know from an audience perspective. But Jeff is actually putting together more things. Like it's almost like he's making up a few things because he thinks he saw him leave. He thinks he saw him come back. And there's no one or nothing. He can't kick back to us and say, hey, did you guys see that? Because I think I saw that. He has no accountability to what he saw. And at this point, he is just an unreliable witness. And I think what happens here that's dangerous is he tries to peg himself or put himself as someone who comes across as an authority who is not credible because he has no experience in detective work, who is far enough away that he can't quite get every detail, even with the best kind of photo equipment, and someone who, honestly, I think is trying to do this from an ulterior motive, which is a place of excitement, a place of trying to solve a problem, which I think a lot of us like to do. We like to solve the problems of our world. We like to maybe overly simplify things. And I think that comes into the way in which he refers to his neighbors superficially as nicknames. He doesn't know them from anybody else. He refers to them based on a stereotype of what he conjures up. And not that that's unnatural because we do that. I mean, we tend to look at a room full of people. And if we're trying to describe a particular person that stands out, we're going to call them out based on that characteristic that makes them different. That woman or that black person or that person with the crazy red hair. And I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that, but I think it speaks to the fact that for Jeff specifically, it says a lot about how much he doesn't know equally as much as it says about what he does know. Yeah. And, and then you consider what they don't know about him and it not being an equal proposition. There's a wonderful conversation between he and Lisa where the name of the movie actually comes into play. Uh, it's, it happens after witnessing Miss Lonely Hearts having her dinner for one and just being completely despair and just so sad. And they start to wonder if they're becoming too involved. Like, are we seeing too much of these private moments? And it, it comes after that conversation I was talking about that he had with the detective as well. And he questions it. He says, I wonder if it is ethical to watch a man with binoculars and a long focus lens. And he questions, he says, do you suppose it's ethical even if you prove that he didn't commit a crime? And this is where she says a great, I'm not much on rear window ethics. And Jeff actually then brings this up and mentions, you know, he says, they can do the same thing to me. They can watch me like a bug under a glass if they want to. And her response to this is brilliant, I think, because she makes him consider 
the truth. And she says, well, what do you think that they would see if they came in here? Do you think that they would believe what they see? She's like, we're sitting here both completely upset with long faces because we have now come to believe that maybe this man didn't indeed kill his wife. She says, we're two of the most frightening ghouls I've ever seen. Don't you think we should be a little bit happier that the poor woman is alive and well? What happened to the old saying, love thy neighbor? And it's a great question. It really is. It's where are you going to fall on presumption? Are you going to presume innocence and goodness? Or are you going to presume the worst of the people that you see? And I think all of these reasons that we've talked about are what lead Jeff to doing the latter, right? And for us, I find this film to be such a pickle, Patrick, because I want to come out of this saying Jeff is wrong. Jeff should not be spying on people. We should not be spying on people. We should let things be as they are and not get involved and stay in our lane, right? But Jeff's right. And Jeff solves a murder. However, illegally, however unethically, he essentially solves the murder of a woman next door. So my question is, and the thing I wrestle with all the time when I watch this is, is are his actions justified because he ends up being right? <laughs> this frustrates me so much. Doesn't and it? I know it does. It's crazy. This is what I would say bleeds into the idea of confirmation bias. And I will say this just point blank in 2020 in the world of COVID and all the things that are floating around triggered by it and the other things that are making one person mad that make another person feel great is all of this misinformation just because you solved the murder, just because you found that the thing that you thought was true was actually true. The way you got there is sleazy. And I think it's wrong because what happens now is that this affects how he looks at the world from here on out. What if he sees something else sketchy going on in the apartment a month later? What if he sees an argument happening between two guys and then all of a sudden one guy's not there after a week? Well, now he's going to start putting two and two together because what he will probably do, Aaron, is what we do. We take one thing that might be true or that is true, and then we tend to oversimplify everything else around it. Oh, one married couple had a fight and someone got killed? And now there's only one. What about a year later? He's sitting in that apartment and he sees a married couple arguing. And then a week later, there's only one person in there. Oh, you know what? Somebody must have gotten murdered because that's what happens when you're married and you have an argument. Now, I'm oversimplifying this, but I think that the principle behind that is still sound because in today's world, we take a statistic and we amplify it and say, oh, that statistic must mean all these other things, when in actuality, that statistic means only that thing that you're talking about. And what happens is, I think as a culture, we tend to oversimplify. We tend to simplify for the sake of trying to gain an understanding. I think you hinted at it earlier. If we assume an idea, we're going to see things, little clues, little tidbits that are going to confirm that thing. 
And there might be a nugget of truth embedded in that. But that nugget of truth is now clouded with all this misinformation. And now we lose the whole idea that we're trying to accomplish. And so for him, when I see that a murder was solved, I don't see him as a hero. I see him as someone who was in the right place at the right time, who is now essentially damaged goods from a moral perspective. He sees these neighbors as nothing more than TV shows. I mean, each window represents a different show that he's watching. And I don't see him at the end of the film being someone who feels like he's changed, who feels like, you know what? I solved the murder. I did something good for my fellow human beings. I'm now going to change for this reason. No, I see him as probably getting a false sense of security. So the next time this happens and he's completely wrong, he's going to justify why he was wrong. You know what? I didn't have all that information. And, you know, but the next time I tell you, it's probably going to be the case. And I think what we have is the makings of the beginning of a conspiracy theorist personally. Again, it, it, it just grates on me because I see this happening in our in, in our world right now. I see these nuggets of truth that get so spun out of proportion and they start attacking people that don't need to be attacked and they fail to hit the mark about what is actually being argued for. And it's just frustrating to me. And I see this so prevalent in this movie. And I love Jimmy Stewart, but I want to slap the guy about five or six times because of what he's doing. Yeah. No, yeah. I mean, that's that's well, that's why he's a brilliant actor. My favorite um, actor of this era is because he can play a role like this and then play a role in It's a Wonderful Life or other films. He's so versatile and people don't necessarily realize that um, unless they've watched quite a few of his, his films. But yes, you're absolutely right. From a character perspective, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I mean, to be honest, Patrick, he's got like a 20% success rate. If we actually look at what happens at the end of this movie, the lonely neighbor is no longer acting lonely. She is chatting with the pianist happily in his apartment. The dancer who he decided was promiscuous and just kind of a sleazy girl who dances around is just, she's her boyfriend returns from the army who clearly is shown to be someone who is not what we would call He's, you know, marrying up uh, uh, physically wise. You know, he doesn't have the looks that she may have, but she's very happy with him. Obviously, the couple, the newlywed that was, you know, constantly having sex behind their little closed shades are bickering and fighting. Um, You know, basically, he's not right about everybody is my point. And so while those are not murder cases, it goes to show that he could have easily been incorrect about this one too and you're right he sort of lucked and fell into it and i love the way you put it about it's essentially confirmation bias that gets him there and creates a situation where now he's going to believe it in the future and going back to my own situation i mean that's what it's like that's what happens because the moment you find one thing that you can validate in some way as being wrong patrick i lived the rest of my life and and relationship at times in utter fear that everything was a secret and everything was wrong and I couldn't shake it and it didn't matter how many things I found out to be true because I'd found that one nugget that validated my belief that I was right 
And I, so I kept searching and searching and searching, looking for the next thing that would just prove me, just prove me right enough that it would push me forward uh, a little bit more uh, in my belief to whatever it was that I was trying to solve at the time. So yeah, I, I'm with you. Uh, it's a very frustrating, but in a, in a good way film because it makes you think about these things and it makes you wrestle with your own torn nature of wanting to be happy that this murderer got captured and that this murderer didn't kill the guy that we've spent the last hour and a half watching but at the same time you're like well you know part of me says you kind of deserve what you're getting right now with your other second broken leg for being a snoop um, one of the other, the biggest themes, I guess, of the film, withstanding the ethics of the spying, for me, was the, the idea of marriage and the relationship Jeff has with Lisa and the lens, <laughs> pun intended, of which he views the relationships of people in the windows across from his. And his view of marriage and relationships very, very much differs from Lisa's and also from his caretaker Stella's and it made for a lot of fun banter. And I think an intriguing question about what the future of their relationship is going to be like. And, and so I wondered how that worked for you. Did you enjoy that aspect of the film and the way that Lisa and Jeff are presented and then where they end up? Yeah, I think it, they both challenge each other and they challenge the stereotypes of who they are. I think that we look at them and we will stereotype them based on the exposition of who they are. We get great conversations that kind of expose us to where she's coming from and where he's coming from. But over the course of the film, they are both challenging to one another because they almost call each other out or they're own lifestyles and they tend to look at each other in ways that are conflicting and at the same time like we look at them and we're like why are they even arguing i mean this is a couple that you just expect to work and yet it's because of the things that we expect them to work that they're fighting against and so watching their chemistry as actors but also watching their relationship as characters, it was incredibly entertaining. And I think that from my money, she stabilizes him in a way that nobody else does. And it's a small cast. I mean, this is not like a huge amount of people in this. And she really stands out to me as someone who challenges him. And I think it's what gives their relationship that kind of interest because of the fact that on his own, he tends to own the people that, he comes into contact with he tends to own the conversations he doesn't let his guard down and for her he does to an extent but i think that she basically allows him to kind of put himself in these verbal situations where we're seeing him and we're going like dude what are you doing stop but for me i absolutely love their relationship and i think that where it started and where it ended was completely appropriate based off of both of their personalities. Yeah, 
I am torn on this. And, you know, primarily it's because of, I, I guess I like that I feel that Jeff maybe evolves slightly. But going back to some of their early conversations, we really get the sense that he is almost wanting to sabotage his relationship out of fear it will fail. He just wants to keep things the status quo. He doesn't want to pursue any sort of marriage. He's happy with the what they've got. And I think that much like the Miss Torso across the street, he ends up being in a situation where he's the one that would feel like he's kind of marrying up if he is at least is out of his league is what it boils down to. She's this classy socialite who's absolutely gorgeous and he's sort of understands the truth about himself and, and what he is and how he approaches life. And it doesn't match up with what she is and what she wants. She is all about these magazines and other things. And what bothers me is even though it's super realistic, the way he gets excited, Patrick, when she starts to get sucked into his plan and she starts helping him spy and find information and even goes over and kind of performs some reconnaissance, he is legitimately turned on at this point by this. And I kept thinking, you know, we all want our significant other to be interested in and to show enjoyment of the things that we love. Like that is one of the greatest feelings ever. When your wife decides to sit down and, and joyfully and, and of her own volition wants to watch the movie with you that you're going to be podcasting on, it is one of the best things that can happen for you. It's not going to happen all the time, but it means so much because it's something that's important to you. And she is wanting to share in that. And it's, creepy and and awful that the thing that that happens with in this movie is him spying like he sucks her into this she is doing these things because she wants him to understand that she cares about him and that sort of rubs me the wrong way and it feels like it even goes all the way to the end of the film and i have a hard time being happy about it because this final shot of the movie is of her reclining on the daybed in his apartment. And she's wearing jeans instead of her nice clothes, which kind of, I think, points to she's changed. She's coming down to the way that he has said he wants her to be. And she's reading this book titled Beyond the High Himalayas. And he has specifically said during the course of the film that he wants somebody to like go travel and take pictures with him. And she like didn't want to do that. And she looks over, she sees him sleeping, and then she puts the book down, gets a huge grin on her face, and smiles and picks up a fashion magazine. Is she only reading what he wants to read for his benefit? Because that's how I read the scene. I read it as she has given up the things that she finds value in to be the person that he wants her to be. And I don't know how I feel about that. And... and. Maybe I'm reading it wrong and, and I'm missing something and I I almost hope I am, but I get the sense that, you know, Jeff has been watching 
Miss Lonely Hearts. And he doesn't want to end up like that. He doesn't want to end up alone. And so he sort of kind of tries to meet Lisa in the middle, but I feel like she gives more than he does, man. Oh, she absolutely does. But she doesn't give up herself completely. And I think what makes her strong is the fact that both he and her, he and she, recognize the world that they both live in. And that moment, to me, where she puts down the book and picks up the fashion magazine, tells me that she's not going to cave completely, that she's not going to deny who she is, that she's always going to be in the world of high fashion and rich world stuff. And that's something that I think we we don't get a lot of what we get are those people that are proud of the fact that they're rich and they just live that vicarious lifestyle through their cars and money and whatnot. She's someone who's unapologetic about where she came from because you know what? Maybe it's justified just like I feel justified in the job that I have because I earned it. She feels like she's earned this lifestyle and she shouldn't have to feel guilty about the fact that she likes high fashion that she likes nice things and by watching her smile at him and dress the way she does and then pick up that fashion magazine i think we'll have more conversations in the future with him and her where she just is like look this is who you have this is who you want to be with and i don't see what she does as a compromise. I don't think she dislikes wearing jeans. I don't think she dislikes trying to figure out what makes him tick and find the things that he enjoys, but it's not at a cost to her lifestyle. And I think that's why that representation exists where you have that book and that magazine in the same shot. She's not choosing one or the other. She's choosing one over the other right now. And if he wakes up and she's reading that fashion magazine, I don't see her throwing that down and picking the book back up. She's going to be like, hey, have you, did you have a good nap? Cool. So to throw this back on you as my comparison, this is you choosing to watch your movies for podcasts when your wife goes to bed. Yes. Instead of when your wife's awake, you're spending time doing whatever it is that you and your wife enjoy doing together. So, yeah. you, so okay, that, that makes me feel a little better about it. Yeah, so <laughs> I, because I don't feel like it's a, I don't feel like it's a, I feel like it's a compromise, not a conflict. And... You could obviously say, well, you know, you're losing sleep because you're having to stay up two extra hours to watch this movie. Yeah, you're right. But I'd rather get the support of my wife for the reason why more than fighting to say, hey, I got to watch this and you're going to watch it with me. Dang it. I mean, the fact is my invitation for her to come into that world will always be there. And I'll say, hey, I've got to watch this for the show. Do you want to watch it with me? And she'll say, Maybe. And she means that. Maybe. And I have to kind of push here and there and say, hey, it's the night before. I kind of got to watch it. And 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 she'll say, no, I don't really feel like it. I say, OK, I'll watch it when you go to bed. And here's here's where the compromise comes in, Aaron. She doesn't stay up until 1030, 11 o'clock with me just to hang out and just to sabotage the time because she knows I need my sleep, too. She'll say, OK, I'm going to go ahead and go to bed or, hey, you can start the movie. I'll probably fall asleep watching it. I'm like, that's fine. And so I think it's a world of compromise. And I don't think she's I think that's what she's doing in this in this film. 
she's offering a compromise without giving up a piece of herself that she still values. Yeah, it's interesting while you're talking. I'm thinking about how we had this conversation during the earlier section about perspective. And is this is this an optimistic or is this a pessimistic thing? Jeff is taking this pessimistic view. He's looking for the worst. And throughout the film, maybe that's what it led me to do is start. I'm looking at this from the worst case scenario when in reality, I could look at this from the best possible case scenario. The optimistic view is that when she shows excitement and wants to go scale the wall and climb into the other apartment for him and to help, she's genuinely excited about it. I mean, she is happy. She is having fun. She is showing an adventurous side of her that he finds appealing that he didn't realize she had. And I think they're both discovering that. And so, yeah, maybe she's reading this book because they're making a plan to go on this trip when he gets better. And that's, she's, they've come to this understanding where he understands she's got more adventure in her. And you're right. It's about making that compromise. So they've come more to the middle on each other and it's not a pessimistic view. And and it's interesting to me how just watching the film and the way that the characters act throughout kind of pointed me in that direction naturally where I didn't want to look at it from the best case scenario because that's not what this movie has done for me throughout the whole time I was watching it. Before we get into connecting points, do you have anything else you want to mention about just like how why you think the film stays relevant today? I know we talked a little bit about tying it into the conspiracy theorist creator uh, um, and how those elements work, but we are still a race of peeping Toms. Like, I don't think that this has changed. I think that given the opportunity, most of us are going to do some, to some extent, do the type of spying that Jeff does. Uh, Maybe not, long term and we're maybe not going to take it and run with it but yeah does anything else stick out to you about why we still love this movie today because this is us man i mean this is people and the fact is we don't or have ever put ourselves in a position where we will elect not to know something versus know something and look for a little inside baseball from the christianity perspective it's the equivalent to somebody saying Hey, I've got a prayer request, but it's unspoken. You know, that kind of thing (laughs) where you have people like, what's going on with them? Are they, what are they dealing with? Is some kind of sin issue or whatever? The fact is we like provoking. We like sending out 128 character messages that trigger somebody in order to get a conversation started. We like putting together half truths so that people can ask, wait, what did you mean by that? And start these conversations. And I don't want to be a pessimist, but I think that the nature of where we are as as just people is that it feels a lot better to be intriguing than to be informative. We like being the people, we like being people that have answers. We like being the people that have the answers, not just an answer. And it's, it's frustrating for sure because it doesn't help people. It doesn't help someone if your motivations are really just to be the answer man or to be the person that comes in and saves the day. And and I face that. I mean, I want to be the problem solver when it comes to relationships with my staff. I want to be the one that has that 
word of wisdom that they walk away going, you know what? I never really thought about it like that. But when my motive is strictly to be that guy, man, it clouds everything that I'm going to say. And it's those pockets, those little nuggets, those moments where I'm saying things genuinely because I care about that person that have a huge impact. And it's not because of me. It's because of a choice that they made, maybe by hearing something that I said, but it's that choice that they made that led to another choice that eventually leads to a victory for them in some way, shape or form. But when you look at rear window, there's still there. We still stereotype. We oversimplify things because it's easy for us to digest. We don't want to sit with the tension of the possibility that the CDC could be wrong about COVID or they could be completely right. Or maybe it's both. Maybe they can be wrong and right because there are people every day trying to figure out this virus. Or when it comes to BLM, what side of the fence do you do you live on? Do you live on being a part of the movement or not a part of the movement? Or maybe it's not about the movement, but about the idea. So these are conversations that take a long time to have. They are coffee conversations. They're not just one take, here's how I feel, and this is it. Because what happens is you get into that oversimplification mindset, and now you've completely kind of stereotyped a person based on one thing that they've said. Instead of seeing it in context, instead of seeing it from their perspective, I, for one, hate wearing masks, but I walk into Kroger wearing a mask. Why? Because there's probably a person in there that really values mask wearing. And to see me probably provokes them to a place where they don't feel safe. So what can I do? I take one for the team, I put my mask on, and I go shopping. I get out of there as quickly as I can because it's uncomfortable. But the fact is, if I'm looking around and not seeing people for who they are, which is people, and decent people and people that have values and people that have worldviews, I'm missing the point. And I'm stereotyping in that regard if I'm not doing that correct thing. And the fact is, <laughs> to be spiritual, we're all sinners, man. We're all messed up. And we all look at the world from a selfish lens, just like Jeff did. And when we get that hint of things that make that kind of confirm what we believe, it's like an endor an endorphin kick, and we just continue to go down that path, even if it's the wrong one. So I think looking at Rear Window, it definitely continues to expose us for not being a crappy people, but just being people that are in need of longer conversations with each other and not just perspectives from across the apartment complex. Or the social media. Or social media yeah, is what I mean, you're getting at. That's like, exactly. I mean, yeah. that's yeah. That's really what exactly. I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. It's no different from just seeing a view of a person that they want you to see. Exactly. And and making your own assumptions. Yeah. Well, let's get into our connecting point to wrap up, and uh, we have the same one, so I'm gonna go first since you've just done a ton of talking, and get us started. The one that we chose, and actually, this is kind of a bigger scene, so I don't know exactly what pieces of this you're gonna pull out of it. It might be different. But it's the moment where Stella is giving Jeff marriage advice. And I just thought that this was an awesome, awesome, awesome conversation that goes down. Jeff's talking to her and he says, I'll probably get married one of these days. And when I do, it's going to be to someone who thinks of life not just as a new dress and a lobster dinner and the latest scandal. I need a woman who's willing to go anywhere and do anything and love it. And this is him describing 
what he wants. And ultimately, as we discussed, what Lisa is going to sort of start to change and show him some of these traits that he is excited about. Stella, in the course of just an awesome, awesome conversation, the whole thing is such great writing and such great just wit to it. But she says at one point, yeah, I can hear you now. Get out of my life. You're a perfectly wonderful woman. You're too good for me. Look, Mr. Jeffries, I'm not an educated woman, but I can tell you one thing. When a man and a woman see each other and like each other, they ought to come together. Wham! Like a couple of taxis on Broadway. Not sit around analyzing each other like two specimens in a bottle. And that is what stuck out to me. Um, basically, Stella is not a fan of dating apps, is what this boils down to. And I couldn't help but pull this out of this conversation they had because it's all about how Jeff is afraid to make a move. He's afraid to push forward in these relationship with Lisa because it's not quote unquote perfect, Patrick. It's not, it does not check all the boxes that Jeff wants in a relationship. And it made me think about myself because it made me think about how the world works today and how hard dating is how it's changed how you don't meet people out and about in the same ways that you once did as much and when we get sucked up when the world got run by mash.com and okcupid and all of these things it's all about criteria what can i filter this list by to make sure that I only get shown people that like hiking or that like movies, that enjoy the things I want to do. It takes all the discovery out of it. And to the point where Jeff could, if it wasn't for this whole situation going down the way it did, very possibly might have lost Lisa. At one point, she's almost done with him. And that would have been a tragedy and, and really too bad because ultimately they realize that there's this middle ground, that they do have some things in common. They are able to share certain aspects of their lives, and they don't have to be exactly the same in order for a relationship to work. And in fact, Patrick, the truth is that if you are exactly the same, it's a lot less likely to work, that you need those things about yourself that's unique and special. You need to be able to get to know one another and discover these quirks and it was just fascinating to me to hear this and apply it now 50 years later after this movie was made or gosh probably what more than that 60 or 70 years after this movie was made that here we are in a society still doing or back then in society there were still people that would do the exact same thing uh, in a sense and and that's what jeff is doing he's just paralyzed with the fear that it's not going to be perfect so he's not going to move forward and man i just i i felt it so strongly uh and you know and not necessarily on a personal right now level but at points in my life where i've been too picky and how i know plenty of people around me who've maybe been too picky and at some point we have to accept that people aren't going to be exactly how we want them to be and that that's a good thing <laughs> and stop being that way about it because otherwise we're going to lose out 
on what could potentially be an amazing, amazing relationship. Um, and we're not even giving it the opportunity to exist because we're believing it's going to fail before it actually fails. And that's that self-sabotage I was talking about. So their conversation really sparked that in me. And I just thought, man, this is so cool to hear these two banter about this thing that literally is happening today in a social media type way. And I thought it was just awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Self-sabotage is the summary word, door words that I would use to kind of characterize this whole conversation. And it stems from that idea that we want talented people to be ordinary. I think we are the Jeff in the situation. You know, he's got this girlfriend, Lisa, who is a, I mean, she's just this fashionista. She's got this beauty about her. She's a 10. She's a 10. She's a 10. And she's beautiful. She's talented. And what does he say? If she was only ordinary. I mean, WTF, man, this is stupid. This is absolutely, you are, you are, you are dumb is what you are, Jeff. You need to just go take pictures of something else and just get out. Because when I watch this conversation play out, I'm like, what are you doing? You're absolutely denying the genuine affection that this woman has for you because you don't think you're good enough. And to me, that's pride hidden in a false sense of humility. Like he is absolutely prideful about the fact that he thinks he doesn't deserve her. Well, he doesn't because he thinks of her as better than him. When in actuality, he kind of thinks of himself as better than her because he's more ordinary than she is. And it was hilariously frustrating to watch this conversation play out because the fact is, Aaron, she held her own the whole time. Like she's that one person I've said this before that can stand up to him and be like, look, if you don't want this, okay, that's fine. You know, I love you, but I'm going to check out, I'm going to walk out the door. And you know, it's sad because I think it's that conversation where she heads toward the door and she says, I'm leaving. And then she says, I'll see you around probably tomorrow. And I almost feel sorry for her because of the fact that I'm like, you should just, just dish this guy. What is it about him that appeals to you? But when we watch that conversation take place, what it shows me is that as, as human beings, and maybe it's as men specifically, I can't necessarily speak for women, but as men, we tend to not think that we're good enough for those that are tens. But in actuality, we're elevating them beyond what I think they want to be. And so... We look at actresses and like I look at Blake Lively and she is so elegant. But what makes her appealing in that kind of fantasy world of like, oh, yeah, she'd be my Hollywood girlfriend. It's because she is married to Ryan freaking Reynolds, this guy who is just a complete goofball. And I think having that relationship in front of me, I'm thinking, oh, well, if he can get someone as amazing as Blake Lively, then maybe when I was, you know, before I was married, I could have done that. No, I mean, the fact is, people are people. And the Blake Livesleys and the Jennifer Lawrences and those that we put on that pedestal, they deal with the same stuff we do. It just looks a little different. I mean, they still deal with self-esteem and how to deal with uh, perspectives that people have and 
hate mail. People still have opinions about them just like they have opinions about us. The only difference is that it's not scattered across the internet for us. Like people that don't like us will give us a bad review on iTunes, but really who's looking at that besides hopefully Rotten Tomatoes at some point. And at the same time, I think we unfairly elevate those that are considered celebrities because of the fact that we think that they have something that we don't or that we might deserve. And so when I watch Jeff and the way he essentially implodes with this girl, I almost I, I get frustrated with him. And at the same time, I relate to him because of the fact that that's what we do. There's always somebody out there that's doing something better, that's making more money, that looks better, that acts better. And instead of seeing that as maybe a something to aspire to as a decent goal, not necessarily something that we latch on to, what we tend to do is then idolize those. And if we can't hit that mark at some point in our lives, we're considered failures. And I think that's the issue with Jeff is that he looks at her and says, I don't deserve you. When in actuality, he's saying, I don't want to do what it takes to get to understand your world. I'm going to be lazy and I'm going to hide behind this facade of saying, you're not ordinary enough for me. And at that point, I want to just punch him in the face. Apparently, I want to get really violent with, with this guy. So, you know, we should probably stop talking about this. But in any case, that was my connecting point, too. Watch out for flashbulbs. Yep. <laughs> for, for real. Go after him in the, in the light of day and not at night. Yes. <laughs> I'll be a window washer and there just like go. sneak up on it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> well, that'll do it for us for this episode of Feeling Film. Again, thank you guys for being patient as we worked through our scheduling conflicts and the holiday and whatnot. Kicking off in just a couple of days is our Batman v Superman spectacular. Over the next couple of months, we will be celebrating the Cape Crusader and the Man of Steel, starting with Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. I'm excited. Aaron's excited, and we hope that every one of you guys are too. Uh, not R2-D2, not R2, but that you are too. So anyway, Aaron, thanks for another great conversation, and we will talk soon. Do you mean R-D-D-2? R-D-D-2. <laughs> Colesse, that one's for you, buddy. I'll do d 2 Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.